Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I am visiting with Riv Ellen Prell. Riv Ellen, an anthropologist, is Professor Emirata of American Studies at the University of Minnesota. She writes about many facets of American Jewish life from the 19th century to the present. And part of that work is her interest in American Jewish summer camping as a window onto a vision for post-war American Jewish culture. Welcome. Thank you. So what drew you to explore the topic of Jewish summer camp? And I'm going to stop here and ask if there's a distinction between Jewish summer camp and Jewish summer camps. Uh, or so, camping, sorry. Yeah. Right. So uh, I am interested in what a variety of writers and scholars call intensive Jewish summer camps, those that really took seriously the mission to try to shape and create a Jewish life through Jewish kids, whether that was in the 1920s or the 1930s or after the war up until the present. Uh, the interest in using summer camp, overnight camp, to get kids in very intensive situations far away from their families, from cities, and from home, to really try to engage them in a new kind of Jewish experience for them. That in contrast to summer camps that really aren't around very much anymore, but ones that were just for Jewish children because they felt excluded and worried about anti-Semitism, which wouldn't even let Jewish kids go to camp, in the 20s or the 30s, even into the 50s, but really didn't have any particular Jewish content. Maybe they would do something special on Friday night, maybe not. They were just like every other kind of summer camp. And how do you think that this aspect of the Jewish experience fits into a larger Jewish narrative? So you're asking me about how summer camping actually did that? Yeah, how this, how this experience for teenage Jews um, and, and how the idea of this, experience, this camping experience is part of a larger Jewish narrative. So the best way to begin, of course, is historically and to ask the question of where did this idea of summer camp actually come from? And it really started in the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, with uh, the idea that the city was corrupting, that mothers were corrupting their sons as fathers were working in the city or farther from home, and that getting out of the city, getting away from the street, especially for boys, was the best way to create and build young men. What's interesting is early on, parallel camping started for young women, so whatever we might think about how girls were treated, in fact, in the 1920s, young girls were going out of the city also in all, uh, all female environments with female leaders, learning crafts or learning sports, various activities that would create young Americans away from urban life and away from their families. Jews, of course, almost immediately found that a very interesting idea. And the first Jewish summer camps were either what people called fresh air camps to deal with poor immigrants or for very wealthy patrons who wanted to imitate the experience of <clears throat> equally affluent non-Jews. Over time, these became much more popular from the 20s forward. 
and how they fit into what you call the narrative of Jewish life is very important because there was a great variety of Jewish summer camping and they were all competing for the narrative of American Jewish life. So something that should be near and dear to the people who listen to your podcasts, Yiddish summer camping grew up in the 1920s. And there were great differences between Yiddish communists, Yiddish socialists, and Yiddishists who were very interested in culture and didn't want to get involved in politics at all. But Kinderland, the first Yiddish communist camp, had as its theme uh, summer camping with a conscience, with the idea that what would happen at summer camp was that you would create good Yiddish committed communists who combined a love of Yiddish language with a passion for politics to change the world. And that was one strand that even followed after World War II, a commitment to language and culture and politics. But then there was a whole other strand that begins a bit later, which is Zionist summer camps, uh, under the sort of leadership and umbrella of a variety of different Zionist visions. Again, socialist versus religious orthodox all with the idea of going for the upbuilding of the homeland, but then actually some probably giving up that passionate idea by after the war and still saying you could be a Zionist by living at home. Denominational religious summer camps really didn't start until after World War II. Uh, Reform and conservative camps started at almost the same exact time. Ramah was the conservative movement. the reform movement had its first camp in Wisconsin, and they were trying to instill the idea of a religious, Jewish, not too religious, but also combined with American life that could really work to in, to attract the baby boom. So when we talk about a Jewish narrative, we all know that means many, many narratives with many ideas about Jewish life. What they all have in common is pretty much the idea that the best way to make Jewish kids Jewish is to take them away from their parents because these leaders have the idea that their parents can't communicate that. Yiddish camps were the only ones that didn't have such a hostile view of the family. And the first Yiddish summer camps, in fact, had uh, apartments for grandparents or even parents across the road from the kids. But the idea of summer camping was really very much the idea to produce a new generation of Jews in the model of the people who were leading them. And as I said, very often against the idea of, of their parents either being too assimilated or not knowledgeable enough or too immigrant or too old world. And you refer um, to, and I'll just quote you, um, that you're considering the topic of a post-war Jewish culture under construction. Tell us a little bit about how you frame that or or exactly how you explain that. So obviously, as an understatement, we know that World War II changed everything Mm -hmm. for Jews um, worldwide and in America. And first and foremost, the impact on American Jewry was one of total and complete trauma not just for the loss of six million Jews in Europe, but because American Jews looked to Europe to provide everything they really needed in terms of creating Jewish knowledge, the training of rabbis, the vision 
of a traditional Jewish life in any way could never happen in America because America was not the site of yeshivas to be training rabbis. It was not the site of the production of great scholars. So there was a tremendous trauma that grabbed American Jewry immediately after the war. Obviously, refugees came, and there was tremendous effort to either send those refugees to Israel or to the United States. But once that crisis was solved, and it was solved so rapidly and so impressively by a generation of Jews who had just come out of the Depression and had very limited resources themselves, then the leaders of the Jewish community, whether that was rabbis in a religious sense or it was secular ethnic Jews or it was the Yiddishists who still held on to Yiddish as an important vision or it was communist Jews trying to come to terms with being in America and the power of the Soviet Union, every one of these groups are frankly dealing with the trauma of the war and what it means now to be the leaders of the Jewish people. And so what it meant to construct Judaism is really kind of starting all over without that central relationship to Europe. Frankly, in the immediate years after World War II, the concept of Palestine and Israel was brand new. Whether it would succeed, if it could win its wars, was very uncertain. So the only certain center of the future of American Jewish life, of Jewish life, pardon me, was really the United States. And the vast majority of people in leadership roles really did not feel that they were prepared to do it, they had the right to do it, but they had no choice. And so one of the very first things they did was pay attention to young people. That, by the way, was what the Yiddishes were doing in Poland, in Yivo. Mm -hmm. The youth were always the hope for the future, and Jews were always reinventing themselves over and over, trying to transmit Judaism or Jewishness or Yiddishism to another generation. And it was always a pretty vulnerable process. So the idea of summer camp was to build for many groups on the camps and youth movements that had preceded the war. But in the case of the religious denominations that were growing after World War II very actively, they were starting from the beginning. So the idea of a uh, religious American identity really grows right after the war. There's a, a huge increase among Protestants, Catholics, and Jews in paying attention to institution building and, pay, and really focusing on their young people. So, in fact, the 30s is a very low point for religious identification in the United States. The Depression makes it very hard to build new institutions. Institutions that had cared for people that had been religious, particularly Catholic ones, have to give way to the New Deal. And so what, what is the future of religious life going to be? And it booms. And it booms not for reasons we might believe, which is a spiritual crisis or responding to the war, though that's a small part of it. It booms because of the suburbs. And no group moves more aggressively to the suburbs, especially proportionately, than American Jews. And they find themselves in suburbs where the most likely institution that they will identify with will be religious. Churches or synagogues for Jews, Jewish community centers as well, sometimes even before there's a synagogue. And they are active and exciting 
because this is a place to put the baby boom. Who will take care of those kids after school, provide them interesting activities, get them to meet other kids like themselves, whether they're Jewish or Catholic? It's going to be Jewish life. And so people who may have been urban communists are finding themselves joining synagogues, places where they most likely never thought they would find themselves. But they have to do it for kids because in this very child-oriented world of American suburbs, institutions that cater to children are institutions that will succeed and boom. So there is a kind of youth-centered world that is built on religious institutions, and summer camps will grow out of and respond to them. So let me just say one other thing about the baby boom, Mm -hmm. and then we can kind of move on to talk about how camping responds to that. The baby boom is what demographers and population experts call a boom because there's a huge spike in the birth rate after a pretty consistent fall in it. And that baby boom creates the largest youth culture based just on numbers that really had existed in the United States. There certainly were other youth cultures in the 30s and the 20s, but the sheer number of baby boomers was really kind of unprecedented. And they are really interesting because they're also consumers. So people are very excited about the baby boom because there are a lot of them and because they also have spendable cash, which, by the way, some of them are earning themselves. It's not just all from their parents. But people are also very suspicious of baby boomers. There are too many of them. And major newspapers like the New York Times, other newspapers that I looked at, are obsessed with teenagers and baby boomers. And it is largely because there are so many of them, because they are very connected to one another, because they share music and they share the phenomena of television and rock and roll. And they're very invested in one another. They are not all that interested in adults, frankly, though adults are very interested in them. So summer camps are absolutely wonderful places for baby boomers because they can be primarily with one another. They can be away from home, and even though they have to leave their transistor radios behind, they are really in the kind of environment that baby boomers really like, which is being very focused on one another and sort of cut off from from adult supervision other than the kind of adult supervision which is at camp, which is more fun, more lighthearted, and is very different than teachers or parents. And so it's in these summer camps all sort of promising a different kind of version of Jewish life, whether it's Habonim, which is a labor Zionist group, which is really kids being in charge of kids, or it's Camp Ramah, or Camp... Um, Asrui in Chicago, or Young Judea, which was a very popular kind of camp, that these kids are going, creating very intensive peer relationships, which will take them outside of camp and through letters and, and youth gatherings in over winter breaks, will create a very intensive peer set of relationships that will follow them in based on some of the interviews that I did with people, really for all of their lives, including the ones who moved to Israel, including the ones who stay in the United States. So we have a very intensive peer relationship fostered by camp with very largely charismatic and dynamic leaders 
giving them really exciting ideas and programming about camp. So let's talk about, if you would like us to go there, about the differences between summer camp in the 50s and the 60s and 70s. That was actually my next question. So tell me, yeah. Okay. So the very first summer that Camp Ramah met in Wisconsin was in 1947, and it was really fun to read about what they did. And one of the favorite activities of these kids who, remember, are not quite yet baby boomers, they were, uh, they were born in the very late 30s during the war, one of their favorite experiences was they lined up folding chairs, the kids sat down, they took a record player, and they played classical music. And the kids loved it. I mean, they really loved it. We're talking about 15- and 16-year-olds. So we're looking at a very different idea about what summer camp might be in the 40s than we are, of course, a little bit later. And similarly, at the reform camp, which starts just a short time later in Wisconsin, they're very excited about a new ritual called Havdalah, which ends Shabbat, which none of them have ever seen. And they're very excited to pray in a way that's very different than in their reform very, if you will, high church synagogues. Their leaders are people who were um, military chaplains as rabbis. They have very exciting ideas about a more religious reform Judaism. And conservative camps are introducing ideas of culture and other things to these kids. So the er the early summer camps uh, have much simpler uh, camp barracks or even tents for some of them. They're doing programming, of course, built around uh, re religious ideas, but nonetheless, they are doing it in the context of outdoor activity, being outside in a way these kids have probably not experienced. Yiddish camps are still there and thriving. Obviously, they're not able to to communicate Yiddish language in the same way as if they had grown up with Yiddish-speaking families, but they are still committed to left-wing ideas. So that has to shift to some extent, of course, because we are in an era of anti-communism. By the 60s, when we fully have baby boomers on the scene, the camps are more sophisticated in terms of their facilities. They have bigger staffs. Camp Ramah has now a number of camps, as do the reform camps. Young Judea has several sites by now. And their programming is also a lot more sophisticated. And one example of something that cuts across all of the camps is this fascination with role-playing. The reform camp uh, puts the reform movement on trial and has elaborate over many, many days activities where they decide if Reform Judaism is failing to really make people Jews or if it's succeeding, and they're asking various kinds of questions in which kids get to be judge and jury and prosecutors. In, uh, in Habonim camps, uh, again, labor Zionist camps, they're doing role-playing that, that I found, thinking of my own children, a little bit shocking, but they certainly do it which is they wake the kids up in the middle of the night. They tell them that they are uh, at risk of being caught by Nazis. They're taken into the woods. Counselors are dressed up. They have flashlights, and they are uh, 
they are under attack, but they have young Zionist leaders who will take them to Palestine, and when they follow them, they are they are at last free um, in a really extreme camp, which it doesn't have a particular it it doesn't have a particular affiliation. It's an independent camp. It's called Camp Herzl Herzl Camp, still there, popular camp in Wisconsin. When I said it was extreme, it's because of what I'm about to describe to you. They throw, uh, one night, there's a brick thrown through the dining hall, and the kids are told that there's a, a threat from uh, Nazis in the area, and they're terrified. And then they learn, after they go through this whole role play, that actually it was the counselors who did it and that there's actually no threat. In some of these camps, there was even a discussion about whether atomic, an atomic bomb might might fall or communists might be coming. I mean, they went to no end, let's just say this that, is extre- yeah. to get kids to really feel and experience what it might be like to be under threat and what they would do under those circumstances. Part of that programming comes from young leaders who felt that American Jews had failed to respond sufficiently to the rise of Nazism in Europe and they are trying to create a moral vision for their campers. And that's very much the case in the 60s at Camp Ramah, where there were a group of leaders who saw their most important role was to develop a moral vision for their campers so that they would never fail to stand up to uh, fascism or to unfair and unjust behavior. In that era, they wouldn't have social dances at Camp Ramah because they never wanted anybody to feel that she or he was excluded in the context of a dance, and they tried to come up with different kind of activities. So whether they succeeded or failed at that moral vision, whether it was really ethical or not to do that to young, impressionable children, having interviewed some of those children who grew up, they did think, on the one hand, that maybe this was a little too scary. On the other hand, they described feeling very excited to be taken so seriously as a 12 or 13 year old and given that kind of moral vision. So what made these Jewish camps of the 60s very different than mainstream American summer camps were a few things. One was that Jewish camps were almost all co-educational camps, which was very unusual for summer camping in America. The vast majority of just mainstream American summer camps always had boys and girls separate from each other. Uh, and there was a view that the way you built leadership and the way you built strong young men and women was to engage them in their own kind of camping. There are a lot of theories about why Jewish summer camps were so, so uh, gender-integrated, and some of those ideas had to do with getting young Jewish men and women to marry one another and summer camp being a great place for people to meet one another. Uh, one person of a, of a later generation who edited a book just about all kinds of summer camping uh, talked about how sexually active summer camping was. Now, I can't tell you as a scholar if that's true or not. I know that the leadership was very, very worried about sexual activity because of pregnancy and other things, but there's no question that co-ed camps clearly featured a kind of um, contained way for young Jews to meet one another and get involved with one another and hopefully marry. And I'm not exaggerating. 
because if you go to the website of Camp Ramah, it lists every couple that met at camp and married at Camp Ramah as a way to clearly articulate what one idea was for summer camping. Um, I think another reason that they were co-educational was the, the central idea of the importance of the Jewish family and that young men and women are in some way imitating that through Shabbat and other kinds of observances. Uh, in interviews with, at least in the conservative movement, young women who were Camp Ramah in that period, because of their commitment to traditional uh, Jewish law in which boys and girls are, after 13, treated differently, I think there was a general view that there was a bias toward males that always made girls second class. I certainly haven't found that in reform camps at all. In fact, one of the first places that really promoted the ordination of female rabbis was reform summer camps. Similarly, in Habonim and in Yiddish camps, that sense of boys and girls being different and an advantage to one or another, I think, was also not the case. I think there was a real sense of trying to create some kind of equality um, from the get-go in these co-educational camps. Um, there was a lot of emphasis on theater and music and arts in the whole history of Jewish Yiddish summer camping. At Camp Boyberich, which was a, a Yiddish culture camp, not a political camp, they actually had seamstresses. I couldn't get over this. They had seamstresses on staff because the costuming and the um, playmaking and the events that involved costumes were so important to them that they really had huge staffs. And in, during the blacklisting uh, in the 40s and 50s, um, a number of rather well-known people were in charge of theater and dance at these camps. And as the blacklists fell or as Hollywood changed, there was a lot of pride in, in some of those people who went on to important roles. So uh, co-ed was certainly a very important part I have to say, in these denominational camps, labor Zionist camps and Yiddish camps, while there were definitely athletics, they were never what the camps were about. Athletics, in some of them, one of their important roles was to learn to canoe using all Hebrew terms or to play baseball using all Hebrew terms. And that very much came out of Hebrew language camps. So Jewish summer camps really were different than mainstream camps if their goal was educational. And that is a kind of really exciting feature of what set those Jewish camps apart. And uh, okay, so where, where, go ahead. Um, where does your, where do you leave off? Do you go up to the present in your writing and research? No, I, I don't. But I, I'm interested in going through the early 1970s because that's the end of what we call the post-war period. Mm -hmm. It goes essentially from the end of World War II, 45, through basically the beginning of the war in Vietnam. Um, and so that's why a critical feature of summer camping in this period of time really has to do, surprisingly to many people, with the issue of civil rights and integration and how Jews took those issues to be very much Jewish issues. And that was why it had a huge feature in role-playing. 
It had a huge feature in the dramatic arts, which often took the theme of integration and segregation into that. It's why they did performances even in Hebrew about, uh, about major civil rights events which were happening while these kids were in camp, whether it was the March on Washington or other events, they actually acted them out. And the period of what I'm interested in, in kind of ends with the beginning of the Vietnam War, which does become a part of the life of summer camp, not so much through the professional leadership, but through the kids who are already in college and coming back and are the senior counselors and, and just below the professionals. I do have an afterword to the manuscript I'm working on mm -hmm. because in the last few years, Zionism has become a really major part of debates going on in summer camping, often with parents, but with the kids as well. How do you talk about Israel? How do you talk about the Palestinians? What place does that have in summer camps? And what, what do summer camps do who have always been Zionist? As questions about what Zionism means really comes up for debate within the Jewish community. And the reason that I end there is because my point is to show that summer camps have always been the medium through which Jews have really talked about their Jewishness. And so when Zionism becomes a critical part of American Jewish life, which really happens more in the 60s than the 50s or 40s, other than for specifically Zionist camps, then it's, it's an acceptable part of the narrative of Jewish life. And that really starts to come up for debate uh, in the 21st century. And, uh, and that's going to just continue to unfold, how people talk about that, how they think about it, what role it's going to play, has really become a very dynamic part of Jewish summer camping today. But that's very much an afterword to my project, which ends with the summer camping of the 70s, but also takes those campers into what was called the Jewish counterculture, which develops at the end of the 60s as college-age Jews, rabbinical school-age Jews, labor Zionist kids who are still very active, begin to try to rethink entirely what it means to be an American Jew uh, as an American Jew, in contrast to their parents who they see as highly assimilated, having wrongly bought into an American dream of suburbanization, of accommodation and, and assimilation. And they want to retell the experience of American Jewish life to bring it forward with a very different set of values and a very different set of ideas that they take out of the American counterculture and the American left. So um, if our listeners would like to learn more about your work or read um, about your research. Is there a place that they can find this? Well, it's, in, it's a, not yet a book. It's mm -hmm. in a series of articles. And if you have a website, I'd be very happy to send some links for them to be able to look at that. Okay, great. Um, well, I thank you so much for joining me today. It's fascinating um, and gives a great um, window into what the Jewish camping experience was all about. And if I can make um, mm -hmm. just one final statement about the great work being done in the Jewish Book Center, um, 
the uh, Yiddish summer camps were uh, the, a critical part of American Jewish life and set the model for many other kinds of summer camps for uh, a remarkable experience of summer camp with a conscience. Thank you. Um, and thanks again for your work and for t taking the time to share this with us. Thank you. All right. Take care. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. This episode is produced by me, Alexa Sewing. And until next time, be well and be healthy.